Broadway Bullet, Volume 810, for December 18th, 2017. One more time around. Subscribe to Broadway Bullet for free at broadwaybullet.com or iTunes, and don't miss a single episode. Now, on to the program. Two shows running on Broadway, Glenn Slater is excited that the sequel to Phantom of the Opera, Love Never Dies, is finally hitting America on a national tour. The current go-to lyricist for two heavy-hitting composers stops by to tell us all about it. Aideen Maloney is in the Irish Rep's production of James Joyce's The Dead 1904. She stops by to talk about the show, her company Fallen Angel, and why Irish playwrights are so popular. This one's for the girls. A reworking of respect is a hit running off Broadway. Creator and book writer Dr. Dorothy Marsick talks about how this musical emerged from a sociology project about how women have been represented in popular music. So buckle up. thanks to our location sponsor. Writers need a full community of support in order to do their important work. That's where DGF steps in. The Dramatist Guild Foundation is a national charity that fuels the future of American theater by supporting playwrights, composers, lyricists, and book writers at all stages of their careers. They do this by sponsoring educational programs, providing emergency aid to writers in need, and offering a free rehearsal space where I've recorded this episode. For any questions about how DGF might be able to help you, please visit dgf.org. Special thanks to our travel sponsor. I'd like to thank uh, my school, the University of Providence. They are our travel sponsor. They pay for me to get there as well as a student to come help out and meet all these people and stay there. And this is all because it relates to the program that I created. It's the School of Theater and Business Arts. You learn the art of being an artist and the business of being an artist, because it is important. If you hear anything in this show, it's that these artists have to treat themselves as an entrepreneurial business. And you learn how to do that as well as your art at the University of Providence. Check us out. There's a link at broadwaybullet.com. And uh, if you are a senior or junior, come on out and visit us. We'd love to see you. On the boards. Is it possible to say that somebody who has two shows currently running on Broadway works with as a lyricist with two of the most celebrated composers of our generation, has six Broadway shows to his credit, at least one major animated musical, that one thing. Is it fair to call that person underrated? But I think Glenn Slater is possibly the most famous, most underrated lyricist working, and I'm so excited to be able to talk with him. How are you doing? Doing great. Such a pleasure to be here. <laughs> Am I right? Do you feel underrated? I, I hear about a lot of other names more than you, but you've done so much, and you... You know, I don't know if I would say underrated, yeah. but I certainly work in the shadow of the people who I work with, mm-hmm. who definitely get more of the press and get more mm-hmm. of the acclaim. Uh, so... I think I'm more on the quieter side, okay. uh, and uh, I, I do a lot of. I have a lot of influence behind the scenes mm-hmm. on the projects I work on, and then when it's time to sort of put them out into the world, I take a step back and let the more famous, my more mm-hmm. famous collaborators, take the step forward. Yeah. So to speak of what those shows are for anybody who doesn't know, currently you have a Bronx Tale uh, running on Broadway, as well as School of Rock. Uh, you've written the lyrics for Tangled. Uh, sister, no, 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 class S- act. Sister act. Yeah, see, it was sister act. 
and uh, Leap of Faith. Leap of Faith. <laughs> Little Mermaid. Yeah, Little Mermaid. Uh, and Love Never Dies. Yeah, Love Never Dies, which opens on Detroit, finally uh-huh. hitting America. Uh, and on television, the Gallivant series. Yeah, yeah. and I watched Gallivant. I was going, I, yeah, and Gallivant was a whole lot of fun. And <laughs> So, yeah, all these things. Mencken and Weber. And I'm very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, let's let's start off in the first thing, the point du jour that your, your press agent sent you in for. And then we can get into talking about a lot of other things and um, that I'm sure everybody's dying to know. But Love Never Dies is finally hitting the... This is the first time it's hitting American shores, correct? This is the first time in America. Yeah. It's taken a long time. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we had got it right before we brought it here. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we know that this is where a huge, huge uh, slice of the Phantom fan base mm-hmm. is. Uh, and so uh, it took a while, but we finally are bringing it here and bringing it around the country and... So much looking forward to getting out into the world here. Yeah. Now it's gonna. How long is it gonna sit in Detroit before it moves on? I I think we were we've been there for a week and a half. I okay. think we might have another day or two there. Okay. So uh, and then we move on to Durham, and I think it's a the tour is gonna last until early 2019, I believe. Okay. So so it's a lengthy. I think at least 40 cities, and maybe even more now. A lot of places mm-hmm. to <laughs> to hit this. Absolutely. So I'm gonna ask a question that I, I I'm guessing you've heard this one, but I think it's. An, is why a sequel? Um, uh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, and I have to say, when Andrew first approached me about it, that was one of the questions I had too. Um, it's the original Phantom is such a great story, a classic piece of literature. It's been made into a classic movie. Uh, it's something that everybody knows and that tells a complete story. And sequels traditionally do not work on the Broadway stage. Yeah. It's very hard to pick out any that have been commercially successful, let alone artistically successful. The only one coming to mind before this really is maybe uh, the Falsettos trio. Okay, yeah. Um, But before that, sequels have largely not quite landed. Uh, And to do a sequel to this particular show, Phantom is the most successful musical of all time. It's Mm -hmm. been running for... Almost over 30 30 years years at this point. Yeah, over 30 years if you include the London. Exactly, exactly. Um, and my first reaction was, why on earth would we do this? It's you're mm-hmm. almost, almost by definition going to be less successful than the first one because the first one is yeah. unbeatable. <laughs> I, but then I met, went out and met with Andrew, and my initial fear, which was that the sequel was just going to be a sort of a cashing in on continuing the story, mm-hmm. um, was immediately put to rest when he began to explain to me what he was seeing the sequel as, uh, because it's it is it is continuing the story. But what Andrew really wanted to do with this was get behind the emotions of the characters, start the story back up 10 years later and see the choices that they made in that first, first show, mm-hmm. where have they led? Um, what does it mean to live an artistic life and to make the choices that artistic people make? Um, what, are the, what are the regrets and the triumphs that people might have had and how do those get tangled up in the way we remember the way things were? Um, so, th- so there is definitely a lot going on beneath the surface and a lot that meant something to me when he was explaining it to me. And very clearly, mm-hmm. these are characters who Andrew cares a lot about and who I think, I mean, I, I think he identifies with the Phantom in some ways. <laughs> you know, a, a, a man who's a great composer who is maybe a little uncomfortable in public life and speaks through his music and has found a way to connect with people that way. Uh, I think that he, he sees a little bit of himself there. So I, when he began to explain what he had in mind, I was halfway on board. <laughs> and then he said to me, let me play you some of the musical themes I've been thinking about. And you know, unlike most composers who, when they want to play you a demo or, you know, <laughs> here's where I'm starting, and we'll sit at the piano and yeah. sort of tickle the ivories a little bit, Andrew went to Abbey Road with a 90-piece orchestra and recorded <laughs> an hour and a half of music. I guess it's nice to have kind of Andrew Lloyd Webber money to do demos like that. Well, you know, and it's very interesting with him because um, he's not... There are some composers who are brilliant keyboard players mm-hmm. and fantastic piano players. Andrew's a good piano player, but he's not that kind of, you know, keyboard maestro. Mm-hmm. But what Andrew does is he imagines, as he's composing the, the motifs and the melodies, I think he's sort of imagining the full orchestral effect and Mm -hmm. orchestrating it in his mind, not just for that moment, but for all the moments that he sees that, that motif Mm -hmm. working psychologically. Um, And so he went, I think directly from the conception to the, now I have to hear it 
full out so I know what I have. Mm -hmm. uh, and he played me this, this demo tape, and it was just absolutely glorious. Um, I mean, some of the most luscious, beautiful, haunting melodies he has ever written in his life. Uh, as, soon as, he's, as soon as I heard the first one, which is what became the Coney Island Waltz, which is not, right now it's not the opening of the show, but it's very close to the opening of the show, and it sort of sets the scene. Um, I, was, I was in. I just said, I must write lyrics for that, because, to, <laughs> oh my God, it's like eating candy, listening to, to be able to actually write to it is going to be uh, just an absolute treat. Yeah, um, I, you were booked to come talk to me after I got here, and I'm staying in a place with horrible internet. But I did discover that there is a version of Love Never Dies that's mm -hmm. like, you know, you can get on iTunes and purchase and watch uh -huh. and uh, before, you know, to see it live. I couldn't stream it. I have a credit connection. I'm staying in a very cheap place. But I did get a chance to at least download and stream uh, Till I Hear Your Voice Again. Is that Till Til I, I Hear You Sing Again? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Till I Hear You Sing Again. And that, it's gorgeous. That is yeah, I mean, it's, amazing. It's, it's so, one of his greatest melodies. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's one of those songs, it's, it's now the beginning of the show, uh, and the show, has, as we said, has undergone a lot of revision since our first production mm -hmm. in London, um, trying to find the right way to bring the audience into this world mm -hmm. and how to unfold this story. Um, but it's now the first song in the show, it's sung by The Phantom, mm -hmm. and it's really the first time for audiences, I think, that they've had the chance to hear The Phantom's own internal monologue. Mm -hmm. You know, Phantom of the Opera, in a certain way, is Christine's story. It's yeah. told from her point of view. We see the Phantom the way she sees him, which is as a disembodied voice, a ghostly presence, menacing, scary, ultimately a, a figure to pity. But mm -hmm. um, we see him through, through her point of view, and everything we hear him say is filtered through her consciousness. This show is more the Phantom show. Mm -hmm. And we get inside of his head, and we hear a lot more about what he's thinking and see the characters and see where they've been from his, mm -hmm. his perspective, uh, which makes it a very different, different animal. Uh, putting that song with that soaring melody mm -hmm. and letting the Phantom just open up his voice in that amazingly glorious way, uh, I think brings audiences now into the world in the best way we possibly can, lets them know how they're going to be seeing the world of the Phantom and then sends them off on the ride. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and the lyrics are, are wonderful and, and convey the right sentiment. I, I would guess that there may be the reason you're, I don't think it's just that you're in the shadow, but lyricists have, to, I think, taken musical theater a big turn since the school of Sondheim. Mm -hmm. You know, there, there's a lot of lyricists out there that are really showy and they try to show off their tricks and do everything. And, you know, hearing your multiple work, I'd say eight, two things. I, I feel you're in a much simpler vein as a lyric writer, which is, I think, actually harder. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, no, writing lyrics myself, knowing that. But also, I think you have a, and probably why you're, I mean, Weber and Mencken are very different. And I feel like you adapt your lyrics very well to the style of the composer yeah. that you were. I mean, I, I, I think with the lyrics, you try to match the style to the characters and the circumstances. And... It's not that I can't write more complex yeah. lyrics. If you go yeah. to say Gallivant, those yeah, lyrics, yeah, those, those lyrics are very, are very yeah. showy and complex, mm -hmm. and lots of internal rhymes and all that sort of thing. Because that particular material yeah. calls for it. Yeah. Uh, but when it doesn't call for it, you know, my my philosophy of lyric writing is that if you can hear the lyricist before you hear the character, it's you're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and so I do try to step back and let the character's voice, the character's vocabulary, take over. Um, rather than, I'm going to put it in quotes, yeah. show off. Yeah. Um, but there's another thing going on, which is, as you mentioned, I'm working with two of the greatest melodists in Broadway history. Mm -hmm. Two guys who um, write melodies like nobody else now can, and nobody has in a while, mm -hmm. and probably never will again, since that seems to be yeah. where uh, music seems to be going into a more percussive, rhythmic, uh, you know, more influenced by Sondheim in the theater and by hip-hop outside of the theater, mm -hmm. uh, where the rhythms are faster, the, the words come out in more of a tumble. Um, mm -hmm. But those guys are still writing big, old-school melodies. Mm -hmm. And part of my job is to showcase those melodies, to let them breathe, and to let them have room to work their magic, which means, as a lyricist, I'm sticking very close to the notes. I'm not mm -hmm. adding pickup notes. I'm not adding additional notes. 
Um, I'm not rushing the words so that the words take precedence over the melodies. Mm -hmm. I'm really trying to to stick to the melodic values. Um, and again, I don't consider it so much that I'm stepping back. Yeah. Uh, well, like I said, this is harder. This is a much harder task. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the way lyrics and music work together in the theater is that the lyrics are the text and the music is the subtext. Mm -hmm. And so many, in so many dramatic situations, they work because the character is saying one thing but means something else. Mm -hmm. The character doesn't have full information. The character is reacting in the moment without understanding the psychological underpinnings that are threading through the character's entire life. And so a lot of the time what, I, what I'm doing is providing the surface level, um, but the music is providing the, the bass note, the, what's underneath, what's, what's really churning in their heart. And again, that's something I need to get out of the way of a little bit. Uh, I want that to come through loud and clear. Um, and I want to heighten the contradictions between what the character is saying and what they're feeling. So a lot going on. It's, yeah. it's never as simple as just uh, stick to the melody. There's always, yeah. there's always uh, lots of, of authorial intent. Um, honestly, uh, on Love Never Dies, um, one of the issues I think we ran into a little bit in London was that we recorded a full cast album mm -hmm. before we started rehearsals um, <laughs> because Andrew yeah. wanted to get his full vision yeah. down with the 90-piece orchestra and the full <laughs> choir and all the voices. And that cast album yeah. is absolutely glorious. I mean, it is exactly what he heard in his head and exactly <laughs> what he envisioned. Um, the problem we ran into is that we didn't book enough rehearsal time to make <laughs> that happen in the room. Okay. And we opened a little bit too fast. We opened before the creative team had a chance to really grapple with how to make that work um, on stage. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of what we found was that as glorious as it sounded, some of it didn't work on stage. Uh, some of it was too long. Some of it was too short. Some of it needed to be... Um, and so it wasn't until we took it to Australia and Simon Phillips... Mm -hmm who wasn't part of that initial thing, was able to say, okay, I am clearing out all of this built-up stuff that you guys have built around it and that has hardened in your minds as this is what the show is. I'm just taking the score on paper and the script on paper, and I want flexibility, and I want to be able to sort of bring a new vision to the piece. Um, and Andrew, to his credit, said, okay, I got to hear my version, and I got to hear <laughs> that it wasn't quite, yeah. it, that as as complete as it is as its own document, on stage it needs to be something a little bit different. And he let Simon have full control for quite a while. Um, and what Simon Phillips was able to do was say, okay, you need a whole new vision for how this works. How the, for, first, you need a new vision for where it takes place. Then you need to expand how the story is told throughout that piece, you need to clarify the dramatic uh, beats mm -hmm. and the emotional, uh, where each character is emotionally. Mm -hmm. um, and then you need to move some pieces around. And we all listened to this very skeptically until we saw what it was that he was thinking. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those, oh, that is a different way to tell the story. And it is faster mm -hmm. and it is clearer. And it does sort of reshuffle everything in a way that makes it feel more visceral. And then we saw his design concept and it was like, holy, that is amazing. Um, because that captures this world in a way that we had never seen in our own heads. And suddenly everything clicked into, into place. Um, but with, without giving him the freedom to clear away all the debris of the prior vision, he would never have gotten there. And that was a long roundabout way of saying, don't overdo your demos. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because you, sometimes you, you need other people to be able to bring a sense of clarity to the project. And if you've brought too much... Because you're not Weber, and even Weber can overdo his demos. And yeah, it, it, yeah. Starts, it makes the project start feeling like it's hardened in place. Yeah. And it makes people start... It, it closes the box a little bit, or makes the box seem smaller. And it's harder for your other partners to do what they need to do. 
And in any successful theater piece, it, the, you really do need those partners to make it happen. It's not just about the, the words and the lyrics and the music. It is about the set, and it is about the orchestrations, and it is about the lighting design, and it is about the actors' performances, and about the blocking, and uh, so many other things that give meaning and sketch character and create a vision that you can't possibly bring when you're focusing on what they're singing or what they're saying. Um, and so you need to leave the door open. Yeah. Um, and keeping the demo simple is a way of keeping the, that door open. I would, if I had to describe Minkin as a composer, he's essentially a pop, a pop music writer mm -hmm. who happens to have an amazing amount of theater savvy. Yeah. And if he hadn't gone into writing theater, I think he, he, he originally wanted to be a singer-songwriter to begin with and would have become an Elton John or a, you know, a Billy Joel or something like that if he hadn't had this sort of narrative sense. Likewise, I think of Andrew as an opera composer who happens to have a huge amount of pop savvy. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody who thinks in terms of the big orchestral tapestry of a story, but happens to have a pop sensibility of how to get that across. In both guys, that pop thing is a major strain. And they write melodies and they write songs that want to be pop songs. And you can fight against it by piling the words on. Yeah. But I don't think their songs live as well when you do that. Um, it's interesting with Andrew because he will often have a melody given a pop moment, and that's the thing that becomes the big popular thing. Mm -hmm. But then he'll also use that, that music as sort of recitative. And for me, it's harder to understand what's being said in those recitative moments because it feels like the amount of words and yeah. the way the words are set up are fighting the music a little bit uh, in a way that makes it overly complex feeling and less transparent. Um, so I do, when I'm working with them, I try to, I try to go with their pop instincts and find that big moment of musical glory and then try to figure out how does it sit in the big story in a way that gives it weight. So for example, in Love Never Dies, there's a song called Look With Your Heart, which is a very simple ballad, um, with fairly simple sentiments and it works like a... You know, uh, it works, you could sing it like a lullaby to a child, let's mm -hmm. say. In the show, it sits in two different contexts. Uh, and it was, and I wrote it to fit into the two contexts, yeah. knowing what the structure of the show was. In the first moment, I, Raul has just yelled at his child and frightened the child a little bit. And Christine sings this, this to him, look with your heart, not with your eyes, right? Don't, don't judge your father by what he's doing, judge him by the feeling that he has underneath. And there's more there than you think. Um, trust that, not, not what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis. After she sings it to him, the song can, he leaves and the song continues, and we get another subtext to it, which is that she's also singing it about the phantom a little bit. The idea that what you see is not necessarily what's meaningful, it's what you feel. And knowing that the Phantom is watching her sing this mm -hmm. in the audience, we get that double meaning. You don't hear it when you're listening to the album, and you don't hear it yeah. when the song is taken out, but in the theater, you get that yeah. doubleness. It's then sung a third time at the end of the show, uh, and I, I don't want to spoil anything, so I'm not going to say the context, mm -hmm. um, but it's sung to the child, and it has an entirely different context altogether. Yeah. Um, same words. Same sentiment, same music, but the context makes it very different and meaningful. And again, I hope it should be uh, a little emotionally devastating. Love's a curious thing. It often comes disguised. Look at love the wrong way. It goes unrecognized. With your heart and not with your eyes, the heart understands, the heart never lies. Believe what it feels and trust what. 
This has been fascinating, and I, I I wish we could talk forever. Got to get ready for the next one, but I I certainly hope other writers and actors and producers and directors, because you've given a lot for everybody to think about with the process, mm-hmm. um, learns as much as I know I have already um, in this ninety minutes talking. So I really appreciate you coming down and, and sharing your wealth of knowledge. I wish you luck with uh, Love Never Dies on tour all over America. Thank you. And, and you know, <laughs> apropos of this conversation, I urge everybody, like, go listen to the cast album yeah. and then go see the show when it comes to your city yeah. and you will see this process in action. You will see yeah. huge changes if you have any interest in the musical theater. This is sort of a, like, can't-miss opportunity to see what somebody like Andrew Lloyd Webber, how even somebody at that level can be so flexible and so um, willing to make the changes necessary to make a show work. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for being so generous with your knowledge and, and friendly. And, uh, and, and best of luck with Beatsville and your other upcoming projects. Thank so. you so much. Okay, thanks. Well, our conversation with Glenn Slater was 90 minutes long, and he talked about all sorts of stuff. Now, we normally, for everything, put up our unedited interviews right away, and we do have the unedited interviews going up for the other interviews in the special. But because he talks so long and so wonderfully about so many things, we are saving him, and we're going to put up another feature in our season finale in 817, where he'll talk about how he works with Andrew Lloyd Webber and... In the best of company. Aideen Maloney is <laughs> with the Irish Repertory, and they are currently bringing back The Dead, as in James Joyce's The Dead, the musical, correct? I, it's not the musical. Oh, it's not the musical. No. Okay, I, okay. 
So this is a, a new adaptation. Actually, it, it had its premiere last year, this okay. time last year, with um, Kate Burton and uh, Boyd Gaines. Kate Burton is uh, uh, Richard Burton's daughter and um, playing the leads. Okay. And, and I play Molly Ivers. And it's an adaptation. It's actually The Dead 1904. And it's adapted by um, Paul Muldoon, Pulitzer Prize winning Irish poet, okay. and um, his wife, Jean Hans Korolitz. And it's, it's, a, it's a play, it's an immersive piece of theatre. The oh. audience come and they are a part of the play of the party. Oh, wow. So, if you will, <laughs> take, taking part in the immersive boom yeah, of theater. They eat and drink, but <laughs> well, we eat and drink. Okay, yeah. Well, no, that, well, that's wonderful. It's a new adaptation, I guess. When I read the press release quickly, I didn't, yeah. I, I didn't get that it was new, but that's wonderful to uh -huh. uh, all the different choices. But in that thing, we did, you, you went in on the play, but I was I'm more introducing you, Aideen uh, Maloney, <laughs> on the thing. And um, you're, uh, like so you said, you're playing Molly. Molly Ivers. Yes. Yeah. Uh, she and you're Irish. I am indeed. Okay, I, I wasn't sure if it was German or Irish uh, or Russian. No, no it's a, oh, well, it could be. I'm Irish. <laughs> Believe it or not, I know. 25 years of being in America, I still have a slight uh, Irish accent. <laughs> uh, I'm glad of it. I'm glad I haven't got got rid of it completely. You know, it's it's nice to still have one's identity and where one comes from. You know, Im, you know, be immersed in that. Yeah, so now I understand that, that like this production sold out. Like, was it last year? It was indeed. This year, it's a, uh, there's some new additions to the cast. Um, Melissa Gilbert is headlining this year. Um, Melissa Gilbert, as in? As in Little House on the Prairie. Yeah. I mean, that for me, we're the similar age, Melissa and I. So, you know, yeah. I grew up with Mel as Melissa was growing up. In, she in, so did I. Yeah, in, in, I, I had know, the biggest I love crush that show. show. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> All of us did. Yeah. So I'm very excited, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm so excited to work with her. And uh, new addition is uh, uh, Broadway actor uh, Rufus Collins. And um, so they'll be headlining the cast. Um, and s s a lot of the same cast from last year, the rest of the cast, like myself. Mm -hmm. So the Irish rep, mm -hmm. when I look at a name like the rep, yeah. or repertory, um, I think of a team of actors that kind of tends to do a lot of the shows sure. the season. Does the rep work that way? It does indeed. It, it's, it, they're, it's like a family. They're very loyal um, to um, actors and people who, you know, who, fit, who are the right fit. Um, but however, they, they don't use the same actors all the time. Um, there's, you know, there's plenty of room for new people coming in from people from all walks of life, not just Irish people like myself, <laughs> Irish immigrants like myself. So, you know, and that's what's beautiful about them. Charlotte Moore and Kieran O'Reilly, they, you know, they're very welcoming. Um, they're very accepting and um, it's just a lovely, warm environment to work in. So um, I've worked there. Gosh, my first play with them was actually the first play they had in their space on West 22nd Street. Uh, it was called Same Old Moon when they built the theatre. And I was in that. <laughs> I was going back a ways. That was 1995. And then I think since then I've done eight or nine uh, shows with them over the years. Uh, so, I, you know, I feel very lucky. So what's unique about working with them versus uh, other other groups or producers? Well, I think it's an individual thing, you know, I mean, an individual story. Everybody has a different yeah. story. So for me, you know, I was new to New York and it wasn't my first play in New York. It was my second play. I, you know, I met them and and it was a place I was young and, you know, being an immigrant and being from, you know, what is it, 5,000 miles away, I, you know, I miss my family. And there was a sense of family and warmth and ease about it, um, you know, back then that it was very comforting. And, um, you know, I, I didn't know too many people in New York and, and certainly not too many. You know, I came here not knowing anybody. Um, and, you know, Charlotte in particular was very um, motherly. Uh, and warm and caring and she took really good care of me and um, was very protective and she's like that it's not just with me I know she's like that with many young actors and um, you know when you come to a strange city that's something that's a great place to, a starting point 
um, if you will. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's an ease about it. There's a familiarity. You know, we're talking, you know, 95, it's now 2017, you know, so that's many years of knowing the same people. <laughs> it is like family. Now, um, we have a lot of student listeners, and, and mm-hmm. even myself, not as a student, even as a teacher, I'm not that familiar with The Dead, even even the musical uh-huh. version. So what is The Dead kind of, what's the elevator pitch? What's it about in a nutshell? Oh, and, my God. And why, do you think, <laughs> why is it so important? Why is it resonating? Because clearly we got another adaptation, sure. so this is a show that is clearly resonating. Well, with I should times. probably you know, start by saying that I'm a major Joycean, James Joyce lover, and have been all my life. Um, and it's not just the dead uh, that I'm involved with. I'm involved with another project also from Ulysses, which I'll go into later with you. But um, the dead 1904 uh, is set in 1904 yeah. in Dublin, <laughs> and it is takes place over an evening um, at the Morkins' house. It's a dinner party, and it's uh, it's a group of family some family and friends who have gathered to, you know, to, to meet. It's post-Christmas, it's post-holiday season. And um, it's a special evening. Um, the primary characters are Greta and Gabriel. And uh, they are a couple that have been married for several years, many years, have young children. And over the course of the evening, uh, Gabriel discovers that his his wife has a past um, and a great love from her past, and it's it's triggered by several events at the party. Um, one is the character I play is Molly Ivers, who um, I guess is Joyce has her as a symbolism of a New Ireland. I'd like to think. Um, she is trying to bring back a nationalist movement. It's, you know, the timing, the historical timing, the political timing of this play is very important. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's trying to bring back an interest in speaking our own language, Irish. And um, she's known Gabriel since they were in university. So she challenges him and needles him and, you know, bristles him and gets him thinking and questioning and irritates him and um, so it gives a, uh, his emotions start to, to, you know, time, you know, he goes back in time and remembers things. And, and then there's another guest at the party who sings a song that triggers this memory, uh, in Greta, which is the catalyst for the entire piece, um, where she's reminded of her lost love who killed himself for the love of her. And Gabriel never knew this. And it's a time of questioning and remembering the dead, of remembering times past. Um, I mean, that's the, you know, the basic story. I mean, mm-hmm. summarize, I could go on forever about <laughs> this. <laughs> but uh, it's very beautiful. It's very beautiful. The language, the emotions are complex, the scenes are complex and, and very intimate. And it's beautiful. It's luscious. It's gorgeous. You know, I, I think in terms of like, you know, playwrights per capita, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Ireland has to have one of the highest amount of like, for that small little country, uh, and that amount of, of writers, people, the and, number of famous writers and playwrights and sure. everything out of Ireland is. But is we huge. certainly get a lot of attention, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you think it is about Ireland that brings, brings soul. out that soul? Uh, a sort of a free-flowing soul and um, or the ability to communicate, the ability to to be honest, to dig deeper, to question. There's always been, you know, culturally speaking, there's always been that that um, personality that's mm-hmm. sort of a, a, you could say, is is in one, one big family, Ireland, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the poetry you know, the poetry of the spirit. And that goes back thousands of years. That goes back pre-Christian times when storytelling was was predominantly the only form of entertainment and probably communication. And, um, I mean, we have fables and stories, you know, that are, you know, as old as probably megalithic and Stone Age times, for all I know. Um, you know, like Cú Cullen and... 
Fionn McCool, all these legendary characters. That's before St. Patrick brought uh, mm-hmm. Catholicism to Ireland. This is a long time ago. It's rich. And, and I think it's just a, it's a, a strong genetic thing that I think has just been passed down. Um, you know, even I'm so proud of Ireland. I'm so proud of its people. Um, I love that, you know, people take an interest no matter what economic background they come from, they take, take an interest, they educate themselves as to what's going on in the world, what's going on in our, you know, local government, our international government, you know, politically and artistically. Um, you know, we have a long tradition of people from all walks of life. It wasn't just for the privileged who would attend theatre, who, you know, in 1916, you know, Ibsen was being was being performed at the Abbey Theatre and everybody from the projects, what, what were the tenements back then, everybody could quote Ibsen, everybody could quote all of these writers. And it's a passion and a hunger for that and for knowledge. Now they can quote Little Kim. Pardon me? Now they can quote Little Kim. <laughs> I'll leave I couldn't quote Little Kim. I'll leave that to you guys. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe somebody much younger than I, but uh, uh, so there you have it. That's that's what I think it comes from. So with all these Irish playwrights, obviously there's there's tons of companies here in the US sure. that, you know, I mean you know, from Brian Friel to uh why am I straight out the um you know McDonough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, McDonough, yeah, I mean, who's been very on, on fire this past two decades. Sure. Do you get a chance to see many other companies doing Irish works? Um, I do. I mean, there's there's several, you know, in the local New York City area. To be honest with you, I'm um, so incredibly busy myself. <laughs> I, I'm producing artistic director and founder of Fallen Angel Theatre, right. which is an Irish women's theatre company oh. off-Broadway here in New York. All right. So I produce all of we, our... We're going to talk more about that yeah, too. Yeah, I'm, so. I'm in pre-production for another show <laughs> that I'm producing, that I've commissioned a new piece of writing. Beautiful. And um, and I'm also, that's Fallen Angel. I also have another company called Wild Mountain Flower, which I founded myself. And I founded that because related to the Joyce uh, mm-hmm. aspect, um, when I was 10, I read Ulysses because we didn't have a television. And ten, no one reads Ulysses. Yeah, I was going to say, that I think that's be the only reason I don't reason know. I knew nothing about this book. I picked it up. I'd run out of my own books as a child. And I was like, what is this? You know? <laughs> and yes, there's lots I didn't understand. But there was lots more that I actually understood better as a child than I did as an adult. One thing I discovered, I did a reading for Bloomsday. So I read a good portion sure. of it. Um, it makes more sense when you read it aloud. It does indeed. So oh. I've just released an album. Um, my piece, my signature piece I've worked on for 15 years is Molly Bloom's Soliloquy. So we've just, I, well, through Wild Mountain Flower, I've just released an album called Reflections of Molly Bloom, um, which is the entire soliloquy with especially composed music that um, my father is a musician, Paddy Maloney with the Chieftains. He did for me. So it's out on iTunes if anyone wants to get it. And it's going to be performed um, next year at the American Irish Historical Society also. Um, there's an adaptation uh, being put together at the moment and I'll be performing it there. Not unlike this production mm-hmm. of The Dead. All right. Well, Aideen Maloney, we've got a lot, of, a lot of places for people to catch you. If they're catching oh, this podcast sure. very soon, they can uh, see the, the Dead at the, the Irish Rep. The Dead 1904 at the Irish Rep. Yeah, and uh, if they're perhaps listening at a later date, there's a Fallen Angel that yeah. they can check out. FallenAngelTheatre.org. That's my theatre company for our next productions. And um, uh, there'll be more after that. The Molly Bloom piece will be happening next June. That'll be a big production also. All right. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll, I'll, I'll be back here in May. Maybe I'll we'll have to get somebody yeah. else involved from your group in to come talk sure. about Sure. Absolutely. About yeah. It'd be great. <laughs> Thank <laughs> All you. All right. Well, it was a pleasure meeting you. Likewise. Okay. Thank you very much. Yep. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. Book Drop. Right. I think those of you who have been listening the past uh, couple seasons know that I've really taken up the cause. There are too many plays where the men outnumber the women. This is just a common problem. So I thought occasionally I would actually highlight some plays that are out there that feature more women than men. So this time I'm going to talk about 
Luna Gale by Rebecca Gilman. It's published by Dramatic Publishing. And the cast is three men, four women. Because, you know, any other time it's seven people, it's always four men, three women, right? So this is changing the curve. And this is what they say about the play, which runs an hour and 50 minutes. Caroline, a veteran social worker, thinks she has a typical case in her hands when she meets Peter and Carly, two teenage drug addicts accused of neglecting their baby. But when she places their infant daughter in the care of Carly's mother, Caroline sparks a family conflict that exposes a shadowy, secretive past and forces her to make a risky decision with potentially disastrous consequences. Powerful and arresting, Luna Gale is a heartbreaking and unforgettable tale of love and betrayal. So, all right, that's again Luna Gale by Rebecca Gilman. You can find it at Dramatic Publishing. So uh, check that out, and um, I'll try to put a focus on other plays and musicals with more women than men. All right. On the boards. This one's for the girls. Is currently playing at St. Luke's Theater in New York City, but it is now and forever been all over and will be all over. And we are very lucky to be talking with Dorothy Masick. Marsick. Marsick. Yeah. Carsick. Yeah, that's, I was like, yeah, I was, was Carsick, <laughs> yes. And we are very lucky to be talking with Dorothy Marsick, who is the book writer and uh, I believe conceiver of the, mm-hmm. of the show because you took a lot of, this is kind of a jukebox musical, but with uh, a bigger theme yes, going on. Yes, yes. It started out as social science research. I was a, a full-time academic in the business school at Vanderbilt University, and I'd always been interested in women in management and women in leadership, and I was living in Music City, USA, and so I decided to look at lyrics of top 40 songs I ultimately did what we call content analysis lyrics on 20,000 top 40 songs to see how women were depicted. Wow. And I found that it went from codependent to independent, from someone to watch over me to I will survive. That's reductionistic, but basically it. And then I started giving these presentations all over the country and around the world because people were going crazy. Nobody had thought of this before. Nobody would seen these patterns in the music. And somebody said, you need to turn this into a musical, and I did, and then it got picked up by commercial producers in 2004, and it, and we called it Respect. Until now, we're, we've changed the name to the oh, okay. Girls. I, I, was actually, I rewrote the script. Okay, I, re- I remember We wrote respect. the script, updated it, and we changed the name, and it's a lot of fun. So I, I would say a lot of musicals are based on books, but not many on social science research. <laughs> yes, that's... that's. Fascinating. So, uh, what is how did how did you pick the songs? So, I take it I'm guessing then from what you're saying that you kind of go through the eras. Do you follow this progression of? Uh... Yes, I'm. I mean, when I started out, I was just doing it, kind of telling people what the songs were in the eras, and then I gradually learned that if I talked about my family, people got more interested in it. So, what it is now is, um, it starts with my grandmother in the early part of the 20th century, then my mother, then me, and then my daughters. So all of that spans about a, a hundred years, and looking at the music related to not only those but my couple aunts and uncles and um, other people that had experienced with music something related to the songs, and there is a, a narrative. You know, uh, people would say, "Why didn't you have any Joan Baez songs?" Well, Joan Baez only had two top forty songs, mm-hmm. and I only did top forty, and really only iconic top 40 so that everybody knows all the songs. Uh, Joan Baez only had two top 40 songs and they didn't fit the narrative. And there were a lot of other singers that the song just didn't fit the storyline that I was telling about, you know, my grandmother, my mother, me, my daughters, and in this gradual awakening from codependent, oh my man, I love him so, he beats me too, what can I do? To I will follow him, or Johnny get angry, Johnny get mad, I want a caveman, I want a brave man. Um, things like that to where we started to get angry, you don't own me, and these boots are made for walking, and then it went to cynical, what's love got to do with it, and finally inner strength, greatest love of all, hero, independent woman. So you can see a really nice trajectory during that time span. Wow, had, had you been a playwright before you took on this project? I had never been a playwright. Wow. Before. 
So from Flare to this show that's been running off and on in New York and everywhere else for a long time, what what were the biggest things you had to learn to, or that you as putting together the show? And well, in putting together the show, I really had to learn how to um, use music to tell a story, which I learned I'm good at because I've done several other other of these. Uh, but then when I started the actual playwriting part. Uh, the biggest lesson for me was that playwriting is very different from academic or business writing, which business writing and academic writing is very explicit and playwriting is implicit. And I started taking playwriting classes and it took me several years to really be able to move into that other way of writing. One of my playwriting teachers used to say, I forbid you to start any sentences with I think or I feel. Mm-hmm. And I think it's kind of like when students are in medical school, the first day they see tissue, they go, oh, my God. The first day I was able to write subtext. Was, oh, I got, <laughs> it. I got it. Now I get it. <laughs> was there a trick that you finally got subtext? I know a lot of writers have a hard time with subtext, even those who don't start from a technical level. So was there a particular, like, brainstorm that finally made it and mm, I got it no, for you? I, you know, I would. what I discovered is that you... If you have a play that you've written and you're revising it, it's very hard to go back and put subtext in because you've already got the structure, not only on the page, but in your brain. Because I kept going back and going, I've got to put subtext in here. Um, and that was after I started seeing subtext yeah. in theater. You don't have to see it first. Yeah. But then as I wrote new plays, that's when I was able to get subtext in. And for me... Um, when I know I've got subtext in is when I can feel emotions coming up that aren't in the words that are being spoken. Yeah. So is that part of what you say you, this was respect and now you've rewritten it and retitled it? Was that part of the process of why you, you changed the show? No, it really had to do with um, the show's been commercial almost 15 years. And, you know, a lot of the people who liked it and saw it are no longer with us. And uh, so I got rid of a lot of the songs in the early part of the 20th century and added some new ones. Okay. So it was really updating it. Okay. This sounds like it must have been quite a challenge to get everything licensed through the oh, publishers. You have no idea. <laughs> I think people say to me, oh, I could do something like that. I go, oh, yeah, fine. That, go get the licensing and then we'll, we'll talk. Or I have yeah. people used to um, want to pick my brain all the time about music licensing, and I... um, Now you can tell them, come listen to this. Yeah. (laughs) And they'd always say, oh, that looks so easy. Okay, well then, you know, I'd get a call from them three weeks later. This is so hard. This is so tedious. Yeah. It takes about a year to get all the licensing Mm -hmm. for a show. If you have more, uh, you know, we have 40 songs. And different publishers and different writers and everything. Different publishers, different writers, and it's a moving target because... One catalog gets bought out by another. And there used to be a lot more publishers, mm-hmm. just like in books, the same as in publishing, in uh, music publishing. Now um, you've got, you know, Sony EMI used to be Sony and EMI, plus they bought out a lot of smaller catalogs. Um, I think in the beginning we had 50 publishers we were dealing yeah. with, and now I think it's down to 25. Yeah. But it, it's... Because some songs have four publishers. They have four writers, and they each have their own publisher. Yeah, that could be crazy. And for listeners who don't know, this is considered grand rights because you've theatricalized it, which means that the publisher alone can't give necessarily give permission that often the artists, the writers themselves, can say, so how many writers did ask, what is the context? Can I see? um, Yeah, I would say we get um, about 10 of those that ask, uh, what's the script and how is it used and and we've always lose some songs you don't always you don't get 100% of them yeah but you, you know I, I know now which ones not to ask Carol King never gives hers the Beatles the Rolling Stones um, <clears throat> there are certain people you don't even bother going to well, and I suspect, too, like, I, I was also flabbergasted at the, that, at the feet Rock of Ages, for instance, pulled mm. off, especially since they started off in a small club in L.A. I mean, mm. you know, and I guess the same thing as you're writing this, they don't know, you're not backed, this isn't Broadway, this right. isn't millions of dollars yeah. being put in. 
So it seems like there's even less incentive for the publishers to be intrigued. So like, what, how did you like, how, how persistent did you have to be to get them to respond to you? Well, it's, it's a lot harder now than it was back when I started in 2004 because uh, the music business has been really crushed and the staffing has been cut down. So there's not as many people working. So it takes longer for them to get back. And uh, sometimes we get an intern, you know, that doesn't know really what's going on. And by the time you get through them, then there's a new intern. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. So it, it, you have to have in t immense patience and, and understand that they're, they've got a lot of struggles too because they, they don't have as many people doing it. And theater is way down on the bottom because they can mm -hmm. make a lot more money in movies and commercials and TV. So you just have to know that going in and knowing it's, it's going to take time. But most publishers are pretty decent and reasonable. And there is a, a standard. Um, it's much easier to get uh, music. We had a, um, a CD for Respect. And getting the rights for a CD, it's all um, um, legislated. And it, yeah, the it's, CD is easier. It's not you can go. It's, you can do it all line. Harry Fox online. You can do almost all the songs that way. But with the um, theatrical, you have to go to every publisher, and yeah. and then the print rights yeah. are separate. If you want to do something that they in the bigger publishers, yeah. they have a, a separate unit, or they they uh, outsource it to somebody else. And hopefully, the end result is is, in, is audiences enjoying the show, having yeah. no idea how much work yeah. <laughs> you had to put it behind oh, the scenes. Really, it, it is. I, the only good thing I can say about it is that it's a serious barrier to entry for other people. Mm -hmm. So it reduces the competition. That, that's what keeps me going when I get frustrated <laughs> with it. But, you know, but I learned, I know a lot about music licensing now. I know more than just about anybody except lawyers who do it full time. Yeah. So that part's been good. It's been very interesting to, to understand the, the legal cases and the legislation and and there's a myth floating around that if you only do seven yeah. bars, you don't yeah. have to get licensing. I'm sorry, that's not true. Yeah. You ha you do two notes, you have to get yeah. permission. Yeah, if it's recognizable as the entity yes, it is. Yes, if it's yeah. recognizable. You don't have to get, um, if you use a title, titles are not copyrightable. Yeah. You can use a title, but if you put the tune in, yeah, then you then. do have to get it. So, <laughs> yeah, so sometimes there's a, a one place where we have a, the, a title of a song, Animal Crackers in My Soup, and I have to put in script, must not sing this. Yeah. <laughs> so. so what what have been your biggest kind of joys or frustrations watching this progress from 2004 to 2017? Well, the biggest surprise was how much people liked it. I, I've done a lot of things in my career, books and presentations, and I've had, you know, I had success and I have people ex excited and like what I did, but this one, they were electrified. When the, the show, when we did the first show with the four woman musical in Nashville at the Dark Horse Theater, which was an experimental theater of 99 seats, I had no idea. I booked it for uh, two days and the cast members went, you should have only done one, nobody's gonna come. Mm -hmm. We could have booked it for eight weeks uh -huh. because the people came and during the intermission, they got on their cell phones. They go, you have to come see this. <laughs> we had um, a number of therapists who had seen it in the first performance and they got all their, their patients to come to the second performance. They said, you have to see this. <laughs> this is so, so um, healing and, and instructive and fun. And so on. so that was, I was like, wow, what do I have here? That's when I knew I had something and had to really keep moving with it. And now, and this is playing or has played many other places. 72 cities besides, and yeah. we're just bringing it to New York now. Okay. So is this available for licensing for other groups? Yes, it is uh, through Samuel French, okay. under respect. Uh, well, Dorothy Marsick, mm -hmm. um, it has been a pleasure talking to you. Oh, it seems like wonderful. you've got a wealth of information. One of yeah. these other times I'm back, we can maybe go into even more detail on, on one of these Many things you've studied. Oh, it's great. It was really fun. Yeah. And uh, this one's for the girls. Yeah, me, my, our listeners might be listening to it in time to catch it at St. Luke's if, or at one of many locations around the U.S. to 
check out this fascinating show or we'll probably be at St. Luke's for a while or, so they yeah. or if you're a theater company it. license it yeah license it yep <laughs> thanks so much for thank coming you, by Mike. thank you listening room all right i wanted to give something to kind of satiate your appetite a little bit more if you're waiting for love never dies to come touring near you here is kind of the big hit from this song and this is there's a video and everything but i know not everybody might not have gone to check that out so this is their big single till i hear you sing my time on smoke and noise in my mind I hear melodies pure and unearthly but I find I can't give them a voice without you my Christine my Christine, lost and gone, lost and gone. The day starts, the day Time crawls by Night steals in Pacing the floor The moments creep Yet I can't bear to And months pass, seasons fly. Still you don't walk through the door. And in a haze I count the silent days. Till I hear you sing once more. Sometimes at night time I dream that you are there But wake holding nothing but the empty air And years come and years go Time runs dry Still I to the core My broken soul can't be alive and whole Till I hear you sing once more And music, your music It teases at my ears I turn and
Curtain Call. All right. Well, that wraps up this week's episode. And although this one ran a little bit late, we should still be on track to get Volume 811 out on December 26th, the day after Christmas. So, your Merry Christmas present, we'll be hearing Rick Ellis come on and talk about Jersey Boy's return. Yes, he is the book writer. And we've also got From Come From Away, two of the ensemble members, Q Smith and Gino Carr, to talk about working on the show, developing it, all sorts of great stuff. And then we have Frankenstein the Musical that is running every Monday and has just been extended. Eric Sirota, the author, wanted me to let you all know it's been extended, and he's here to tell you all about that show. So you're just going to have to wait until then. Spread the word, please. Tell everyone about Broadway Bullet. Word of mouth is our best friend. And until next week, I am your host, Michael Gilbo. And our production assistant for this half season was Catherine Chandler, my student at the University of Providence, who came along with me this trip to help out with the whole sequence of recording. Oh!